Hello and welcome to another edition of the Godfrey's Law Real Business Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Brad McDonald, and today I am joined by Claire Waghorn, who is the Sustainable Transition Leader from Christchurch Airport. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Well, it's awesome. We've uh, You and I have battled through some illness and some other circumstances, and uh, we've finally connected, which I'm really stoked about. So uh, great to have you on board today. Um, and I guess really I'm just going to start by introducing you to the audience uh, insofar as the online stalking I did of you. <laughs> uh, and it's quite an impressive list. So you're the Sustainable Transition Leader at Christchurch Airport, as I said in the intro. You're also a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand, uh, with a focus on international climate law, with an MSc in International Relations from London, uh, the Law Degree and a BA with Honours, a Bachelor's of Arts in Diplomacy and International Relations from the University of Canterbury here in New Zealand. And currently you're working towards accelerating the transition within the aviation sector towards zero emissions. Good luck. <laughs> Claire's previous roles uh, include par- parliamentary researcher for the Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand and foreign policy officer for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You currently also sit as a director of Holland Consulting New Zealand, a board member of the New Zealand Centre for Global Studies, and the Kaikoura Canterbury Lawyers Commission, as well as the International Airport Review Advisory Board. My gosh, yes. how do you find time to sleep? Yes, well, I don't actually. I don't sleep particularly well, if I'm perfectly honest. I also have two small children, so they have a, they also have an impact on uh, sleeping hours. I've got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and, and they're pretty big in terms of impact mm. um, in life above and beyond the... The professional stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah, wow. So it looks, I mean, look, you, you, I mean I, I'm mean, i in awe of obviously all, all your qualifications and, and, and all the professional things you have done. So what can you tell us about your background? How did you get to where you are today? It yeah. must have been quite a journey. Yeah, well, um, I grew up travelling a lot as a kid. My parents, both scientists, Mm -hmm. we moved around a lot. And I really, from a young age, identified as a global citizen. And that sort of came from going to international schools. And um, every now and then you'd get really identified as a New Zealander because I'd let a word slip out like togs, you know, (laughs) and then they'd all point and say, what? Exactly, exactly. Um, and then I came back to New Zealand and had the opposite reaction where people would say, where are you from? I said, mm-hmm. what do you mean? I'm from here. I'm a New Zealander, same as you. Said, you don't sound quite the same as us. And so I sort of, um, uh, from a young age, identified as being something something in the international, in the global space, was my comfort space. And all of my mm-hmm. studies have sort of, in a way, touched upon that or drawn upon that. So it was... Law for me was really international law. Politics was international politics and diplomacy. And I thought that's where I wanted to be. So I started off with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs mm-hmm. and had a really great first posting actually in India and um, had the pandemic portfolio of all things back in bird flu days. Oh, wow. And um, it's topical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a scary thing. <laughs> um, and uh, then uh, ended up studying a bit more. I think I could have easily been a perpetual student, mm-hmm. um, but such as needing to earn a living. Yes. <laughs> um, moved away from there and then got a role in Parliament for the MP that had the global affairs portfolio, mm-hmm. um, which originally was foreign affairs but moved to global affairs and uh, with the Green Party. And that um, it was a really great values match for me because I'd always been really connected in terms of our role looking after our environment. And I think, if anything, a lot of that came from one of the places I grew up in as a kid 
was the Solomon Islands. Right. And I was there for four years living sort of barefoot, climbing trees, playing on beaches, going to a local school with local kids and um, understanding just as I was getting a little bit older before I came back to New Zealand for boarding school, um, the implications of our changing climate already. And that was yes. back in sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And looking at... Um, I didn't understand really what was going on back then, but I knew that, okay, this is something that's really precious and these people's lives are really dependent on it. And that just became an interest area to keep pulling those threads and understanding more as I went through study. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. So um, you find yourself back in New Zealand uh, with the Green Party. Yes. And so how long did that um, gig last for you? Yeah, oh, it was a long one actually. And um, it was interesting because I'm – quite, uh, I suppose, averse to conflict and uh, challenging conversations and politics mm-hmm. seems to have quite a lot of those. For sure. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, I did find the Green Party to be a really nice, safe space, nice little bubble, um, and uh, worked for them in numerous roles. And after the Christchurch earthquakes, uh, came got a posting down here, doing still getting to do... Um, some global affairs, but also getting some uh, Christchurch recovery portfolio work. Right. And uh, then had uh, had my first child and moved into a new role that was for the Asia-Pacific Green Federation. So there's 108 Green Parties around the world that all right. share the same sort of foundation constitution principles. And uh, my role was for all of the parties from the Middle East right up to sort of Mongolia, around through Asia, India, Mm -hmm. in the Pacific Islands, Australia and New Zealand, and helping them uh, share policies where where there were resource differences between the parties and actually it would be helpful for them to be able to see examples, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes draft constitutions or um, get them ready for global conferences. Uh, Yeah, so it was a really interesting and varied role. But... um, and, and a great values match for me. And I got to work on global issues, on climate issues and things that felt really important to me. But around the same time, I suppose, as my, my older kid was about four, so she was going through the why phase where every yes. question is, but why, <laughs> but why? And um, uh, Jeanette Fitzsimons, who was one of the founding um, founders of the Green Party, she passed away unexpectedly and Um, I remember being really struck at her funeral and a few things I'd heard sort of beforehand about how she felt like we'd never done enough. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a really tough gig working in climate because you're never going to check it off your to-do list. It's it's too big. And I felt, I was feeling overwhelmed by the scale of the climate problem and felt maybe, maybe a better angle for me would to be, would be to pick a really hard to abate sector. Mm -hmm. And just become an expert in that one area and do my time trying to accelerate the transition in a hard-to-abate sector rather than taking on all of climate and feeling always frustrated at never, yes. never having moved the dial enough. Maybe Drop in the ocean. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, when I was sort of thinking, oh, where could I go next? Um, I knew I didn't work, want to work for an oil company. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to go into coal. There were some like really clear... Um, some hard lines there. Yeah, some yeah. hard lines where I wasn't going to go. But um, felt like on the flip side, though, where working in a community garden would be lovely. Mm-hmm. It would be joyful and um, a wonderful thing to do. It didn't feel like 
it was enough of an impact. They're already doing things great. Actually, I want to pick somewhere that's mm. got a transition to make. Mm -hmm. And um, as it happens, I think aviation is one of those sectors that is actually really important Use. to keep. It's, it's not as simple as coal where I, I believe we just stop. <laughs> just stop with coal. We don't need to keep right. doing that. But actually, aviation is an industry that basically supports the entire New Zealand economy. A lot of people just think it's tourism, but it's so much more than that. It's mm. all of our exports. We're a globally connected market-based economy dependent upon it. Yes. And, and healthcare as well, actually. All of those people that need um, rapid transit of um, health tests or mm -hmm. implants or, you know, necessary medical items, mm. that's all aviation. Yes. I think we don't often think about those other aspects of it. We just think, oh, those troublesome tourists and what are they that's doing to our environment? But it's, it's yeah. more than that. And so I thought, look, if we can change how we do it so it's cleaner, then that could be a really, um, a really clear mission. And, and mm -hmm. thankfully, I sort of got connected up to a general manager at Christchurch Airport who was looking for somebody. Right. And, um, yeah, and it's been great. I was genuinely nervous, though, initially about jumping into the corporate world. I thought the corporate world might be really a bit scary and daunting, which seems ridiculous coming from politics. But I have to say it's been a really nice jump and actually very friendly. Right. Oh, that's yes. good. Nice yeah. transition. Yes. And so how long have you been yeah, at Crossfit Airport as Sustainable Transition Leader? Yeah, three and a half years now. Oh, and wow. um, I've been really, really lucky in that um, the company was already on board in this space before I turned up. It wasn't a hard ship to turn around or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, the airport started measuring its carbon emissions back in 2006, and that oh, was wow considered weird at right. the time. People were like, why are you doing this? It's yeah. not compulsory. You know, why do you want to know that stuff? And thankfully, um, my predecessor, uh, Reese Boswell, um, and actually a number of predecessors in that role thought it was important and realised there was something there that we needed to action. It was mm -hmm. important to the industry, important to us globally. And... Um, so the journey began really back in 2006, well before I turned up, and the airport started focusing on, all right, what activities uh, are we undertaking? What mm -hmm. is the impact of them? Uh, and how do we change them? So they developed what was known as the Green Transition Plan mm -hmm. and started just working through all of the things on that list in a, in a priority sort of in a prioritised way, yes. which um, our CEO, CEO at the time had this quote, uh, we can't go green if it puts us in the red. And it used to drive me nuts. I really <laughs> disliked it. But actually, I really get it. What he meant mm. was um, it has to be these transitions that we make need to be uh, – we need to be able to pay for them and they need to be able to last in the long term. They can't just be a short-term Band-Aid. Actually, this needs to be a full – Sustainable, um, environmentally and economically. Yeah, exactly, for yep. it to really last. Yes. Um, and – that was so. There was a lot of research into various options and timing around when projects would come mm. on board and when we'd make transition steps. But by the time I turned up in, uh, well, early yeah, just before COVID, really January twenty twenty, um, a lot of the in-house emissions activities had been addressed or were in the process of being addressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I did was really just take those frameworks that I'd been working on from a government and global level and look at how do we how do we implement these to make 
make sure we've not missed anything, that everything we're doing is really sound. So, for example, mm -hmm. and this is probably something that's transferable to any business. Yes. Um, you, you start by having a policy, so setting out what you want to do, and I think the most useful way to do that is to link to the global goals. So you start with, okay, what, what are we trying to do if we take climate, for example, at, at the UN level, mm -hmm. keeping temperatures within 1.5 degrees? Yes. And then drop down the level and think, what is New Zealand committed to? We've got the Zero Carbon Act. What are our commitments in there? Uh, what's the Climate Commission's pathway for us? And then just work through those and make sure you're aligned. Mm -hmm. um, so set yourself some policy to align with, with global best practice and national best practice and then set yourself targets. And a lot of companies in the early days were setting targets like, well, let's have 30% by 2030. It's got a nice ring to it, but mm -hmm. it's meaningless. You need to set science-based targets. Yes. And science-based targets are these wonderful things where uh, very clever scientists um, have set up a tool. It's called um, the Science-Based Tool Initiative or SBTI. And it's a free online tool where you can put in what industry you're from, put in your baseline emissions, so how much you're creating now, and it will tell you what pace you need to reduce these by to know that you're doing your bit. Mm -hmm. And it recognises that different industries will have different reduction paces. Now, for an airport, we actually don't sit, oddly enough, within the aviation sector for, um, for science-based targets, which is really what the airlines need to be doing. Mm. We sit, um, sadly for my colleagues, within more of the commercial shopping mall space. Uh, effectively, oh, right. that's what an airport terminal sort of is. <clears throat> sure, big mall. <laughs> we've got those kind of, if you think about the technology available to us for transitioning, yes. it all exists. It's, it's not yep. the same as the airlines. Yes. So um, there's really actually no excuse for airports not to transition or shopping malls for that. <laughs> <laughs> for that matter. Yeah, for that matter. Um, so, yeah, the, we set science-based targets mm -hmm. uh, that are meaningful and aligned with what industry you're in, and then you just go ahead with your actions. Just take the emissions reductions actions you need to do to get there. And what's been really um, positive and reinforcing about the airport's journey is often when you get a company that don't want to take these, one of the reluctances around, oh, well, it'll cost us a lot. But in yep. the example of Christchurch Airport, every single emissions reduction activity we've taken mm. has proven to be economically beneficial. So we, for example, swapped out our... Um, generators, our diesel generators for a ground source heat pump system, uh -huh. which is this really cool technology developed by um, Becker and Christchurch Airport. Yes. Um, and it takes the aquifers that run beneath the airport and the ambient air temperature, and it uses a heat exchange sort of system. Right. And heats and cools the terminal through just the temperature differential between the aquifer and ambient air temperature. Mm -hmm. And it's closed loop system, so it doesn't... Yep. Um, cause any problems to the aquifers of contamination or anything like that. And it's a beautiful, ingenious swap out compared to a diesel generator. It mm. saves thousands of tonnes of emissions and a lot of, a lot of, money. A lot of money saved and yeah. a lot of maintenance, actually. Yep. There's way less maintenance involved, way less money in terms of operational costs and, mm. uh, a, yeah, a really good swap out. And we've found that, you know, another solution is... Um, energy efficiency. Well, mm -hmm. that directly equates to cheaper electricity bills when you're using more efficient mm. um, products. And we did a fleet swap out as well. Uh, so 
you know, the capex costs of electric vehicles are higher, yep. but actually operational costs are much, much lower. So mm-hmm. um, the airport has found a, a really reinforcing journey to date, which, is, which has been fantastic. Yes. Um, so you go about your policy, your science-based targets, your emissions reduction. You also need to think about how you're doing this from a just transitions perspective. So it's all very well to get really focused on we need to make these transitions from a climate perspective. Yes. But actually it's critical Similar to that quote, you can't go green if it keeps you in no, you can't go green if it keeps, keeps you in, the in the red. red. Yeah. Yes, you also it's not sustainable if you're not bringing people with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had one example where um, our CEO had been over to uh, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam this yes. pre-COVID and seen they had an enormous amount of electric taxis and thought, this is great, we need this. Mm. Let's have electric taxis back at Christchurch. Let's let's make a roll. You can only use electric taxis in here. And so we thought, well, that's great. We like that. Mm. We need lower ground transport emissions as well as lower airline emissions. Yes. And... Um, went to sort of go and instigate this new rule and realised actually the people that operate taxis at Christchurch Airport do not have the immediate capex available to swap out their cars. Often they're immigrant Mm. workers that are supporting their families. They're sort of the single um, source of income for their families. And actually they would be a really vulnerable group if we were to suddenly bring in this new Change the cost of entry. Exactly. Uh, So a much better way of dealing with that is to signal it say look it's mm. this is our expectation and incentivize it look you won't right. we have a thing called the loop where our um taxi drivers pay a cost to come into the loop to pick up passengers yes. and uh you know you can incentivize it by saying look if you've got a clean vehicle you don't have the same charges coming into the loop mm-hmm. and uh signal we really want to get this to being a 100 percent swap out by this date yeah and actually it's pretty useful having the government come in and also incentivize mm. electric vehicles that happened a bit later but uh, thinking about the moves that you're making from a just transition perspective is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess an, another just transition consideration for us is intergenerational opportunities. Mm-hmm. What are we What are we leaving for future generations of New Zealanders? Right. And if we decide, look, actually, aviation isn't a thing. We can't decarbonize it. It just needs to stop. Mm. That really cuts off future generations in terms of their ability to <laughs> be part of an operating economy. Mm. Um, it's yeah, and it's it's not an easy thing to. Um, you you also need them to have a livable planet, so it's it's critical. And I guess these these balancing pieces tell us why it's so important to accelerate the decarbonisation of aviation as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. We cannot waste a moment, mm. uh, not actively trying to pursue that yes. transition for that industry. Yes. So once you get there, there's also um, climate adaptation considerations. So we've talked about the reduction side, but what we already know is we've baked in 1.3 degrees of warming already, and mm. chances are by 2030 it's looking pretty likely that we'll 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 surpass our 1.5 degrees warming that we're all trying to stay within. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a difficult thing to think about, but also imperative that we plan for it. Right, so yep. adaptation, thinking about, look, we know we're going to have more hot weather days, we're going to have um, more wind events, uh, more surface flooding. These are the challenges that are ahead of us. Mm. How do we uh, plan for this and how do we think about 
connectivity within New Zealand as well and adaptable modes of transport. Yes. So we already know that um, the South Island, for example, has been cut off several times with flooding across major bridges. And uh, yep. one stage, I remember my sister was on the other side <laughs> <laughs> waiting in a little car. Um, and actually, uh, after... After the earthquakes, actually, and in Kaikoura, they were cut off. They were an isolated state at one stage, I think. Sure, yeah. Um, actually, aviation's really great in terms of its adaptive capacity. It can fly mm. over all of that. Yes. But you want it to be in a clean way. Mm. So that's that's kind of our the steps of considerations of what, what you would need to do if you're a, a small business thinking, what can I do on climate? Where do I start? What is the framework? And yes. that's, that's the framework that actually – copies the government's framework. Okay. We have right. the Zero Carbon Act that sets up um, an independent climate commission that sets the pacing of which New Zealand needs to reduce emissions by. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same as the science-based target tool. It's basically an independent tool that yes. sets the pacing of which you need to reduce emissions by. Right. And then we have an emissions reduction plan, which the government puts out. The next one is due in December of this year. Mm-hmm. And so for a company, you just set out what are your activities that you need to reduce and set out your plan and then um, think about the just transition who are the most vulnerable people here and then the adaptation plan Mm -hmm. Um, how you how are you going to make sure that you're not putting yourself at more risk or your business at more risk um, and how are you adapting to the changing climate that we have in front of us Mm. but I mean that's all very climate focused and actually that's not my entire role. The, the, <laughs> I also have, um, so I'm the sustainable transition leader, which covers more than climate. And I'm a big fan of Dr. Mm-hmm. Kate Raworth's donut economics framework. And what that is, is if you imagine a donut, mm-hmm. um, which is really easy to do, which is why it's such a great framework. Uh, the donut is considered the safe living space for humanity. And on the outside edge, which you don't want to fall off, is your planetary boundaries. Don't exceed your environmental limits because then it's not safe for humans to live on this planet. Mm. But equally, there's a there's a middle hole. You don't want to fall off that side either. And that's that's about meeting social needs. It's saying, look, we actually need to use environmental resources to meet people's needs, but we don't want to use so many that we exceed our planetary boundaries. So there's a safe operating zone, which is basically what the donut economics framework is all about. And that in conjunction with a Mataranga Māori worldview, which Mm -hmm. is that everything is interconnected. Actually, it's our siloed thinking that's got us Mm. into trouble in the first place. Alongside um, Dr. Johan Rockström's planetary boundaries work which he's basically the outside of the donut saying look where the nitrogen loading is too much biodiversity losses problematic Mm -hmm. ozone depletion actually ozone depletion is a great story it's like one of the one positive it's one of the positives isn't it it? yeah Yeah, it's what i was always scared of when i was a kid it was like oh my god the hole in the ozone (laughs) yes but actually global heads got together montreal protocol and Mm -hmm. now we have actually a healing Ozone layer, so yeah. it can be done. Can be done. It can be done, yep. and um, so what we've done at the airport is I've taken um, those favourite frameworks of mine and thought about okay, from an airport perspective, from our business, what are the areas that we can most materially influence? Uh, from an airport, we've identified climate mm-hmm. clearly because yes. of um, the airlines, particularly the airline emissions. Mm-hmm. 
biodiversity, which initially people raise an eyebrow about because they think, well, you know, that's for dock rangers, surely, in conservation <laughs> estate. But if you look out my office window, there's concrete as far as the eye can see. Yes. And that is a biodiversity impact. It's just not a really great one. Um, yep. So we can do better. And yes. uh, we have great opportunities, actually. We've got a dry land habitat at Christchurch Airport that is the most... Um, oh, how would I describe it? It's not particularly attractive. It looks like a rocky kind of dead paddock. But if you get down on your hands and knees and mm -hmm. crawl around with an ecologist, it is yes. magic. There's right. all these great tiny little endemic species that only exist there in the whole world. Wow. Tiny little native orchids and native copper butterflies and great species of mm. high, high biodiversity value. So we can love and protect that. Mm -hmm. We also have a, a wetland um, to love and protect. And what we can do is um, introduce more native species specific to the area that that we're in and start reintroducing those wherever right. we can around the buildings that exist. And actually, yeah. even on airfield, at the moment, we've got a monoculture grass, mm -hmm. which is... Um, designed to be particularly distasteful towards birds because right. we don't want birds around planes because no. they're really problematic. So um, what we can do, though, is introduce some of those little dryland species mm -hmm. and that then improves the soil health of yes. the airfield, which then sequesters more carbon. So it's great for climate. It's great for biodiversity. So those are the, the sort of things we actually can pull those levers in the biodiversity space. Mm -hmm. um, another material area for us is circularity, which is basically our way of looking at waste that, that we don't actually want waste it's all about keeping things in circulation for as long as possible mm -hmm. rather than a sort of a linear model where you take make and use and end up in landfill so um do a lot of work in that space and energy and energy is probably uh, a really interesting one for us at the airport and, and moves quite neatly onto what is the future of aviation which is yes. a really kind of cool and interesting, evolving, very quickly area. Uh, what we've realised is it probably started about three years ago, Sounds Air told us about their electric 20-seater plane that they had lined up mm -hmm. and how this would take two megawatts to charge. And that, that got us interested. Mm -hmm. Two megawatts is about the same size as our terminal. Mm -hmm. So we thought, oh, okay, we can charge one 20-seater plane or have the lights on in the terminal. What are we going to do? <laughs> All right, this is, this is an en energy play. And actually, when you think about it, of course it is. You're trying to displace fossil fuel. Yes. You're basically, getting rid of jet fuel and replacing it with a clean energy alternative, it's going to be a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So the more we delved into that to understand, well, how much energy, the more we realised... Uh, we needed to generate a lot and on site. Right. So on the eastern side of the runway is mm -hmm. our property development in the city of Christchurch. On the western side is our renewable energy precinct. Mm -hmm. And we've got 1,400 hectares, so we're really lucky for an airport. It's a well, big it's amount big of space. Of yeah, yep. exactly. And have put aside... Um, the western side for Renewable Energy Precinct. We've called it Kofi Park mm -hmm. because there's this beautiful Kofi tree. Uh, it's 200 years old. Mm. It's a historic kind of tree and sits over there. And we're going to look after it. We're not going to bowl it and put solar panels Good. instead. <laughs> In fact, we planted a few little Kofi next to it so that it would have some friends. But um, we're starting with between 150 and 180 megawatts of solar, which mm -hmm. is huge. To give a sense of scale, the largest solar farm in New Zealand at the time when we were suggesting this was, I think, 5 megawatt. So wow. 180 is massive. And... Um, 
nobody in New Zealand's built anything of that scale. So we had to find mm-hmm. partners that had global experience, but yes. we also wanted partners that understood the New Zealand energy market because we recognise we're an airport and we need this energy, but we don't want to become an energy retailer yes. ourselves. So um, have this wonderful joint venture um, partners in LightSource BP. They've done huge amount of solar development over in Australia and elsewhere in the world mm-hmm. and Contact Energy who clearly big players in New Zealand yeah. understand the New Zealand energy market. So um, they're starting on phase one of our renewable energy precinct to make um, a large solar farm. Mm-hmm. From there, what we want to do is generate our own green hydrogen on site. So that's considered the solution for domestic and trans-Tasman aviation. Okay, right. So we can foreseeably see through our work, we've got a hydrogen consortium with Air New Zealand Airbus Hiringa, which are a Mm -hmm. hydrogen refuelling company based up in Taranaki, but setting up refuelling stations around the country. Yes. Um, Future Fortescue Industries, which are a big Australian company that are putting huge investment into hydrogen, really have aspirations to um, provide a lot of global hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And then Fabrum, which are the most amazing Christchurch-based company that are just, uh, they're just kind of tech geniuses that Mm -hmm. have been working on, quietly working away at the back of Hornby in this this, uh, warehouse, uh, the first electric uh, engine for aircraft. Um, They do work for NASA Mm -hmm. on spacesuits. They do cryogenics works. They make electrolyzers and they liquefy hydrogen. So they're, and, and they are kind of, World famous everywhere apart from in New Zealand. Yeah, right. Sort of, Never know, heard they, the name. Exactly. So there you go. They're an yeah. outstanding company. Yes. Um, very, very New Zealand. Props to Fabrum. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm completely in awe of them. And so th- that's our hydrogen consortium. So with them, we're mm. mapping out what are the requirements, the energy and infrastructure requirements for decarbonised aviation mm-hmm. and how do we help the rest of our industry Decarbonize. So we have an open source approach to what we do in sustainability. Right. Yeah. We will just we need everybody to get on board. So yep. we will share openly and thought, look, um, Auckland gets most of the international travel in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and the solution for decarbonizing international flights is sustainable aviation fuel, which is a sort of a specific biofuel for aviation. Mm-hmm. It can be derived from crops in the same way a normal biofuel could, or it could be synthetically made, which would be through a process that involves green hydrogen and carbon capture and turning that into a synthetic e-fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so uh, Auckland of um, traditionally done Auckland Airport done more of the homework in the sustainable aviation fuel space and then there's a great grouping with Wellington Airport Nelson Airport Kapiti and Blenheim mm-hmm. and together they're really getting ready for the electric aircraft because they do very s- short Small hops, hops. Yeah. and um, Sounds Air are really doing a lot of leadership in that space and mm-hmm. lining up short hops over, over between those airports and then with hydrogen, we've got the space to generate on site, mm-hmm. which a part of the hydrogen puzzle is making it cost competitive so that the airlines will want to take it up as quickly as possible because yes. it will make financial sense for them to, as well as it's the right thing to do mm. um, for our planet. And we're really lucky in that Air New Zealand have, the, they have a lot of ambitions in this space and 
of all the airline partners in the world, mm-hmm. we're incredibly lucky to have Air New Zealand. I know that people in climate never think anybody's doing anything fast enough. Yes. But compared to the alternatives and the other airlines out there, we're really lucky with Air New Zealand and how progressive they are mm-hmm. in terms of um, putting out procurement documents to get clean flights and clean planes and ask really pushing the manufacturers mm. to create the type of aircraft that they need to transition over. And I think they also recognise that that our economy now is already facing the effects of carbon miles on our products. Mm-hmm. It's it's already problematic. So we just cannot do it fast enough mm. uh, on top of the on top of the warming effects that we're seeing. Yes. So um yeah, it's a really interesting space to work on because even in the three and a half years since I got into aviation, the development of hydrogen as a solution for aviation domestically and trans-Tasmanly. Um, trans-Tasmanly, that's not a word. Maybe we can edit that out. Um, you know, across the trans-Tasman yes. um, has really advanced massively. Mm. So um, there's still a lot of work to be done and mm-hmm. it's an area that we're hoping, uh, well, it's an area that we're going to need to bring the public along to, mm-hmm. along with as well. I think in the same way electric cars had people nervous initially yeah. around range anxiety and what if it cuts out on a motorway, you can imagine hydrogen and people's first, yes. you know, where yeah. your brain first goes with hydrogen. Yes. Uh, there, I don't think there's going to be many volunteers to get on the first flight, but <laughs> we're going to work them up to it and <laughs> it's it is it does make sense for aviation and I think one of the difficulties with hydrogen as well is it's energy intensive mm-hmm. to make hydrogen. It's mm-hmm. not as energy efficient as just electric directly, but yes. for aviation it's a payload problem in that um, the size of the battery required to get your plane as far as you want to go would mean you wouldn't get any passengers in there. So in order to have a fuel that is energy dense, mm-hmm. that, that is light, that mm-hmm. means you can still fly a long way and carry the energy as long as you want it to go. Yes. That it has to be liquid hydrogen. Okay, right. Yeah, so right. that's that is what we are. That's um, the future. That's the future yeah. that we are working towards. And um, I mean, all of this is the best indicators that we have from the people that are leading the aircraft development in this space and you know there's always the possibility that things might adapt but we've also decided that there are some known truths and and one of those is we need to get away from fossil fuel Mm -hmm. we need to get away from jet fuel and we will need some other clean energy alternative yes so investing in the creation of new clean energy that seems like a really sound thing to be doing right Mm. now Mm. um and so that's that's where we're at right yeah Wow. Yeah. Very, uh, very exciting work and obviously much needed given the climate crisis that we all face globally. Yes. And the fact, as you pointed out quite rightly, Claire, that, you know, I mean, uh, uh, paraphrasing, we're a little island at the bottom of the world, (laughs) two islands, I should say, or three, many islands, won't leave out our friends at Stewart Island and uh, elsewhere. Um, So, you know, we've got this problem that we need to surmount and we just can't keep doing it the way we've been doing it because that donut springs to mind. Yes. Uh, much like the donut here in uh, Springfield. Yes. Uh, is that, you know, there's only so far that life can survive. 
Yes. Uh, when play, you know, the tolerances and they're fine in many cases, to my understanding. I'm not a scientist. I'm a lawyer for the record. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, that's really exciting work. So, I, I mean, I asked the question, do you get up and go to work each day fizzed about what you're doing and excited about the work you're doing? I do, actually, yep. and that was really important to me. I wanted to feel like the moment that I feel like I'm not making a difference, then mm-hmm. I need to move along. Yeah. And um, it's really interesting. Our old CEO, he... He identifies as a climate actionist. Actionist, yes, yes, <laughs> and that is absolutely part of his legacy. And he yes. left the airport to go and work for Genesis, right? Um, which is a bold move, but entirely because he wanted to have an impact in a hard to abate sector. And actually, if you look at New Zealand's energy grid, mm-hmm. coal is what's left to get rid of. And so off yeah. he went to Genesis. And I think um, I feel. Uh, really similar in, mm. along those lines. As long as I feel like I'm making a meaningful difference and I want to stay where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that ever, if I feel like, oh, look, we've done it, mm. <laughs> it's time to move on and find the next tricky one. Yes, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, well, all I can say is that the world needs a lot more people like you, uh, oh, Claire. You. Uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, and just before we wrap up today, where can people in business, um, whether they be you know SME or bigger, where can they go? Like online, are there resources, or where would someone go? How do you make a start on this sort of journey? This is such a great question because there actually is the most phenomenal resources within the Sustainable Business Network. Uh-huh. They have a climate action toolbox which is designed exactly for SMEs right. on all of the things you might need to get into sustainability and climate action. Mm-hmm. And it won't be, climate action won't be the most material piece for all companies. Yep. It might be some really have a more social sustainability opportunity to maybe mm-hmm. feed children or, you know, other yes. really important aspects of living on the donut. Yep. Um, but there's, yeah, really amazing resources um, from the Sustainable Business Network. Okay. So, so, so Google Sustainable Business Network. and Yes, and Climate yep. Action Toolbox, if that's the specific thing you want to get into. But uh-huh. they've got phenomenal resources. We're really lucky to have them. Great. Yeah. Okay. And so what does the future hold, just quickly? Oh, my goodness. Big question. <laughs> I, I have small children, so have to have to imagine that the future is going to be positive, that, that yep. we're going to get there. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, Every now and then you can get into a bit of a funk when you're working in the climate space and you read too many IPCC reports and you think, oh, yes. gosh, this is a bleak outlook. Yeah. But even if we don't make 1.5 degrees, mm-hmm. 1.6 is still better than 2. Yeah. You know, actually everything we do in this space matters yes. and will make a difference. So yes. I think um, that's, that's sort of part of what just keeps me going is yep. every little bit matters and every little bit will impact on what kind of a future my kids have. Your kids have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, what more can we ask uh, than that? Because, you know, the future is our, our children and, um, you know, we're only as good as the planet we leave behind. Yes. And, and obviously a lot of this has been baked in, I think was the term you used in terms of the, the temperature and that's through, you know, decades and decades and, you know, maybe centuries of human outputs and, and practices, um, but it's about what we do today for a better tomorrow, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I think enjoying those little moments in life is so important as well. I mean, we just yeah. had Easter, Easter weekend and I went tramping with my seven-year-old and, cool. you know, I was out there doing the Mount Summers walk and just mm-hmm. thought, look, life doesn't get better than this. This is this is it as well. Yes. This has got to be the balance to the yeah. 
to the doom and gloom side is to remember to, to get out there and live lightly, but also yes. enjoy our amazing planet and the amazing people on it. Exactly. Yeah, no, well, wise words, and we're so blessed to live where we live, of course, and to get out there and be able to enjoy those beautiful spaces and places. So, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board the podcast today, Claire. I'm glad we finally uh, managed to connect. So, um, I'm, I'm really stoked to hear about what you do, uh, and I hope that the audience uh, listening to the podcast today um, uh, have found some interesting material in here. I know I'm probably going to go back and listen to this one because there's a lot I want to listen to again and, and think about. Um, uh, so it's um, you know motivated me and um, stirred some things within me that I hadn't considered before. So thank you. Um, so it's been a real pleasure. Oh, likewise. Thanks yeah. so much. So thank you for listening today. This is your host, Brad McDonald, on the Godfrey's Law Real Business Solutions podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's guest and listen out for more episodes in the future. Thank you so much. Good night.